Hello and welcome to the Ask the Geographer podcast series from the Department of Education and Outdoor Learning at the Royal Geographical Society with IBG. I'm Harry. In each podcast, I'll meet geographers from around the world to ask them about topical events, timely publications and geographical research. Professors Kavita Datta and Elaine Chase are academics from Queen Mary University of London and the Institute of Education, UCL. They are working with colleagues at the School of Oriental and African Studies on a research project which focuses on the impact of COVID-19 on care and remittance practices among migrant communities in the UK. As the COVID-19 pandemic significantly disrupted social, economic and mobility patterns around the world in 2020 and 2021, the World Bank then issued stark warnings about the impact on remittances, described as person-to-person monetary lifelines, which support around one in nine people globally. These cross-border transactions are crucial on a human level and on a macroeconomic one, as 28 countries, for example, receive remittances that account for 10% or more of their GDP. Kavita and Elaine, thank you for joining us today. Hello, Harry. Thank you for having us. Yes, thank you for having us, Harry. Pleasure. Uh, Kavita, what is the Connecting During COVID research project? So, Harry, over the past two years, we've been working with Indian, Somali and Brazilian migrants who are living in London, Glasgow and Cardiff. um, And we've been exploring the impacts of the COVID-19 pandemic on these communities. The project has three broad aims. The first is to map remittance sending patterns and trends during the pandemic. The second, to explore how the COVID-19 pandemic shaped migrant communities' care practices, um, both locally and transnationally, and the implications this had on their well-being. And the third is to examine how both social and financial relations have been digitized due to pandemic-related lockdowns. Did the World Bank's predictions of remittances undergoing the sharpest decline in recent history, due largely to a fall in employment and wages for migrant workers, come to pass? No, they did not. Um, So like you said, very early on in the pandemic, so I think it was in May 2020, the World Bank um, predicted that there would be a historic and unprecedented decline of remittances by 20%. Um, And it later revised this just a few short months later, I think in June of 2020, they revised um, these um, predictions to say that they would actually be um, a more gradual decline, but there would be a more prolonged impact um, of the pandemic on remittance trends. So the revision was that remittances would decline by just over 7% in 2020 and by a similar percentage in 2021. In the event, though, um, remittances only declined by 1.6% compared to 2019 um, in 2020. And um, quite interestingly, in some regions of the world, they actually increased. And Kavita, which regions saw an increase? So interestingly enough, if we just um, take out Europe and Central Asia, where there was a decrease in remittances, all other regions in the globe, but to varying extents, saw an increase in remittances. So this is Latin America, Asia Pacific, the Middle East and North Africa, and Sub-Saharan Africa. And this is according to the latest World Bank data. Elaine, why are migrants particularly vulnerable to an economic crisis such as COVID? Okay, so uh, obviously migrant populations are very diverse and they're working in very different parts of the economy. Some actually did fine during uh, the pandemic. But what we found was that the pandemic really exacerbated inequalities that were pre-existing the pandemic. So many of the people we spoke to were on non-permanent contracts in sectors of the economy hardest hit by the pandemic, such as hospitality, etc., 
um, and as a result, they suffered job losses. Um, whether or not they could sustain their employment um, was also a major issue. And nearly half of a total of 357 survey participants, um, including 45% Somali, 50% Indians, uh, respondents and 51% Brazilians reported a decrease in household income during 2020. And many of them were struggling to meet essential basic needs like uh, food, housing, education and heating. Food insecurity emerged as a major issue, again, often predating the pandemic, but becoming uh, more difficult during the pandemic. And this was um, particularly affecting migrants who had insecure legal status here, as well as international students. For example, we found that students from India really were reliant on part-time work to sustain their livelihoods while they were studying. And of course, they no longer had access to that during the pandemic. So food scarcities were a major issue. The other thing we found was that housing initially difficulties in paying rent, but also the protections that were there broadly for or should have been there for people, for example, protections from eviction, did not hold out for migrant communities, particularly those who had insecure legal status. So we found that members of migrant communities were being evicted during that time, and they were very much dependent on the goodwill of the landlords that they had. Many were living in very cramped conditions. So again, intersecting with kind of underlying inequalities, many people in migrant communities live in overcrowded conditions, but under lockdown and COVID, they were particularly impacted by the difficulties that they were facing in living in cramped conditions and having to stay home the whole time. Uh, They were working in sectors of the economy, such as care, where they had we were particularly exposed to the risks of COVID and feared the whole time about bringing that back to their families. They were often sharing in multiple household accommodation with strangers who were, even if they were able to protect themselves, they felt that others were going, having to go out to work and they couldn't isolate themselves and be protected from others. There were real concerns about their own well-being, but also the care and well-being of loved ones in other parts of the globe. And obviously, as the pandemic rolled out at different points uh, and at different times, they had huge anxieties about whether people had access to vaccinations, access to the care and support that they needed, etc., and access to resources. Education was also a major issue. And particularly in the Somali community, we found that many children had no access to the digital means to get online. So they didn't have tablets or computers or they had very cramped spaces to be able to get online. And then I think one of the major issues was the lack of eligibility to government schemes such as furlough schemes or other employment support schemes or financial schemes. So if people didn't have uh, regularised legal status here, they had no support to those. And there was no real recognition, it seemed, by local authorities or governments that these communities were struggling in these ways. It was really only community organisations that stepped in to fill the gap as much as they could. And of these three communities that you've mentioned, uh, Brazilian, Somali and Indian, is the UK a significant originator of remittances? So yes, it is, um, Harry. So more broadly, the UK is in the top 20 remittance sending countries in the world. Um, And India in particular is one of the main destinations of remittances from the UK. So India and Nigeria are generally jostling for the top position. I think there's a couple of other things to add to that. 
The first is that it's important to bear in mind that remittances constitute only 0.4% of the UK's GDP. So in that sense, the UK remits less as a share of GDP than most countries in the world. And these data are from the Migration Observatory reports. But also a second point, which is that we often think of remittances as just going outwards from the UK, but the UK also receives remittances, but sends out twice as much as it receives. So there's an interesting geography and um, sort of dynamics of remittance sending from the UK. I imagine the important thing to acknowledge is that we are part of an international network of flowing connections, and it is a lot coming in and a lot going out. Yeah, yeah. And particularly, I mean, sort of, and then it's particular nodes in the UK. So London, as being one of the most sort of um, diverse cities in the United Kingdom, also has some of the most complex remittance corridors. So remittances going out and remittances coming in. Elaine, how do remittances, which are a financial flow, um, connect with care relations and migrant well-being? Yeah, and I think this is a really important area that we try to kind of illuminate through the research. So the policy level literature tends to kind of present remittance flows in graph form, um, showing kind of spikes and troughs as, as movement of flows of money. But behind all of those flows of, of kind of financial resources are the kind of um, emotional and connected and interrelationships that, that go on, which are really, really important. So behind the flows are what that money does. It, it, it kind of supports older people's access to care. And that was particularly important during COVID-19. It supports children's education. It fills the gap and responds to the difficulties that families are having back home, etc. But there's another really important side to remittance flows, which is around the emotions involved in sending or not being able to send remittances. So we found that people talked in with enormous pride about being able to step in and help others, being able to kind of meet those needs that couldn't otherwise be met and were able to help. And that really gave them a sense of pride, but also a sort of sense of solace that they were doing the best that they could. The reverse of that was when they were unable to do that, they felt dreadful. They felt shame, embarrassment. Um, they were, it, we found it really upsetting. They no longer had the money. They were just struggling to eat, for example. They could no longer sustain those flows back home. And so there were constant anxieties and feelings of inadequacy, really, on the part of many people when they were unable to sustain uh, those flows of money. So I think these emotional and interrelational aspects to remittances really came to the fore through our research and are, are really such an important set of aspects to, to remittances in general. So it's important to remember that there's a social emotional element to it as well. Absolutely, yeah. Um, are remittances a stable form of financial flow, Kavita? Um, and, and what's meant when people say that they are counter-cyclical? So maybe I'll try and answer this um, question in sort of three parts, um, Harry. The first is that the statements that are usually put out about remittances being a stable form of financial flow is usually made in comparison to other financial flows. So what are we comparing it to? And generally, remittances are compared to um, overseas development aid, which is referred to as ODA in short, um, and foreign direct investment, so referred to as FDI in short. So those are the comparisons. And in comparison to ODA and FDI, the World Bank data again show us that remittances are relatively stable. Now, the second part of the answer then is that this comparison, many critics would argue, is problematic because we're not comparing like with like. 
So ODA, or Overseas Development Assistance, are development aid flows. They're bilateral and multilateral development aid flows. FDI is linked to private equity flows. Remittances, on the other hand, are generally intra-household. So they're transfers, financial transfers between or within households. So we're not comparing like with like. So that it's, it's, it's problematic to sort of make that comparison and to say they're more stable than these. But to come to the point also of counter-cyclicality and stability, this refers to the fact that remittance sending generally either remains stable or increases when crisis or disruptions occur in home countries. So while other financial flows, and in particular, for example, foreign direct investment might flee at the sign of political or economic or environmental turmoil, remittances are likely to hold stable or they're likely to increase. And the reason for this is very simple. Migrant communities have parents, they have children, they have siblings, they have extended families, they have friends, they have communities who they've left behind and who they still want to support. So you will see that remittances might increase or will generally stay stable and these other financial flows are tending to decline. So that's sort of at a general level. If we bring it to COVID then, this was sort of, if you like, um, and and part of the reason why we had these dire predictions of a, a global slowdown in remittance sending was that counter-cyclicality rests fundamentally on the assumption that crisis hits home countries and not host countries. So migrants are able to continue to work and migrants are able to continue to remit. So what happens in a pandemic, which is global, is that it's hitting both home and host, and hence those predictions that remittance sending would contract really, really significantly. And these predictions are based on an assumption that migrants will start to lose their jobs and their capacity to remit would decline. But as our research shows, this didn't really materialize. And while there were differences across the three communities that we studied, the Indian, the Somali and the Brazilian, across all three and on average, what we saw is that although the amount that was sent went down, the number of people who were remitting went up. And so in a sense, we be what our, what our research is showing in London is now being picked up also at, at a global level, which is that remittances did not decline at the pace and at the rate as was initially suggested. That's so interesting that remittances are stable or increase in financial crises. I think it connects back to what Elaine was saying about thinking about remittances as practices of care that are underpinned by social relations that, are, you know, that if your mother is in need or your child is in need or your friend is in need, etc., then people want to help. And so it's the social relationships um, and the social relations that underpin remittances that really explain that stability and counter-cyclicality, etc., or what is sometimes referred to in the literature as resilience of remittances. And does that also apply to natural disasters as well as financial flows? Yes. So it does It does apply to natural disasters. And you could see that in, you know, there's lots of evidence across different natural disasters. Um, the tsunami of 2004, we saw a huge uptake. Um, and even in, in COVID-19, and, and this is not just remittances, then it's also uh, charitable flows that peak during times of crisis. So there are economic flows, there are remittances, there are charitable flows. Um, There's certainly been a surge in digital communication across different generations and countries. Were people's digital needs always financial? Okay, Harry. Yeah. And this brings us back to the social and relational aspects, I think, of this work. And absolutely not. So what we found was that the kind of digital was really a way of sustaining contact, maintaining relationships. So often in um, transnational communities, you have sort of, uh, they're punctuated by visits from family, etc. As they come over to visit family, all the uh, migrants here go back to visit family. Obviously, all of that came to a standstill during 
during the pandemic. So uh, the digital means was the main way to maintain those relationships. Um, so people talked about spending extra time online, spending longer periods of time online talking to loved ones, um, helping out with the kind of digital aspects transnationally, you know, helping people to get online or sustain connected or help with other t- kind of technical challenges that they were facing. Um, so there was a lot there um, that was going on. I've already mentioned the kind of the digital relating to educational needs and, and how some of that lack of access was really really highlighted through throughout the pandemic children's difficulties in getting online or having access to the equipment that they needed etc and i think the other really important aspect that came out was how what sort of lifelines the digital provided for really crucial information about where to get vaccinations about translating so much information that was in english but not in the languages that people required how much of that was done sort of digitally and through the different networks that that were evolving new whatsapp groups etc set up to support access to really crucial information about healthcare about vaccinations about other supports such as if necessary access to food banks and other financial needs. So um, the digital played such an important role during the pandemic. I think it's important to add that people talked about it being difficult to sustain this same level of connectivity by the time we got to the second and subsequent lockdowns. Um, But definitely when things sort of um, started, the digital was an absolutely crucial means of connectivity and support for each other. I guess if we went back to the financial aspect of digital connections, those did become more important because, of of course, um, sending remittances is predating the the pandemic. People sent remittances digitally, but they also use remittance service providers. So whether they go to a high street shop or an agent or a bank or whatever, and those initially and, and particularly in the early parts of the pandemic, access to those um, remittance service providers was limited because of the lockdown. And so more people did switch to digital remittance sending, and that presented some problems in particular populations, in particular communities who didn't have prior experience of this. Um, but also equally, that was where policy did keep up or policymakers did keep up so that remittance service providers were quite rapidly, I think within the sort of first three or four months of the pandemic, were reclassified as essential essential service providers and therefore could stay open during the lockdown, although for shorter time periods and they had staff, you know, uh, illnesses, etc. But they were able to maintain a presence. But so we did see a shift. Um, The question is that, is that a permanent shift or will people go back to visiting a high street shop um, or a service provider in some other capacity? We've all mentioned a few times um, or used the word lifelines, um, so underscoring how important remittances are and or connectivity in general um, for these communities. Um, how well did the British government respond to migrant communities during the pandemic? I think if we sort of pick up on some of what um, Elaine was saying earlier on, I think there was a what we found across these three communities and across the three cities that we worked in, that there was a general lack of understanding of the priorities and needs within these communities. 
So that was one aspect of it, that there wasn't a sense of, of, of where the need was and what the priorities were within the communities. A second element was a lack of eligibility of some migrants, and particularly those with irregular status to government-operated um, schemes, such as furlough. So you couldn't, you either couldn't access them or migrants didn't know that they could access certain government-run schemes. And within that context, then, what we found was that community organizations, um, some of which are run by diaspora populations, so if I explain that, so if these might be organizations that are run by settled Indian migrants in Glasgow um, who've been here, who are in their third or fourth generation. So they're run by, by diaspora populations. So what we found was that these organizations really were first responders, if you like. They recognized the need, they picked up on the priorities and they acted on that. So whether they started to branch out into providing hot food or providing information or directing newer migrants to where vaccinations were available or pointing out that they were eligible for these vaccination schemes, etc. They were really crucial in responding to the need that they were seeing in their own communities or in their in, in, in their wider communities. And I guess the last bit perhaps to add to that is that the pandemic might now be over. Um, but that these needs continue and they're potentially being exacerbated by a cost of living crisis. And so there's a real opportunity to learn from what worked and what didn't work during the pandemic and to continue to sort of um, invest and to sort of, you know, help support the initiatives that are in place to help people who are vulnerable and marginalised. That just leaves me to say thank you both very much for joining us today. That's been fantastic. Thank you for having us, Harry. We've really enjoyed the conversation. Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, please subscribe to the Ask the Geographer podcast series on iTunes and SoundCloud.com. Be inspired and stay informed with the Society's wide range of resources, many of which are free. School membership unlocks access to other excellent resources, including online lectures and many other tailor-made benefits for teachers and students. Access our resources at www.rgs.org schools.